Hello! Hey, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to another week of the Weekend Film Tech. We're covering three stories in a Hey Professor this week. Our three stories are, first up, Aperture ships their new spotlight attachment. Second up, there's this crazy camera. If you're watching this on YouTube, I have it in my hands. It's the Insta360 Go. We're going to talk about why that is actually relevant to filmmakers. It is a stabilized micro camera. Our last story of the week, and I'm actually going to do it after Hey Professor, is the Red versus Apple patent fight. I already talked about it at the No Film School podcast. I know some of you listen to both, so I'm going to do it last, so you can skip it. And then we have a fresh new Hey Professor from a brand new Hey Professor source, Instagram. That is apparently where the kids are all about asking questions these days. So you can always ask me questions on the Instagram. So this is, again, Charles Hayne, the Weekend Film Tech I will see you after the little intro music. Our first story this week on the Week in Film Tech is Aperture has shipped their spotlight mount. If you don't know who Aperture is, you probably know who Aperture is. But if you don't, Aperture is a Southeast Asian company, Chinese company. They make LED lights. They are best known for their very affordable punchy lights. They don't have a lot of RGB options yet. I think their only RGB options are like a little Edison base unit. But they really are very popular for their... Very punchy for the price units. So like their 120 daylight, which is a little unit. It's got a Bowens mount on the front. You can get barn doors for it. You can get Fresnel for it. Aperture also has a 300D and between the 120D and the 320D, and then they make a lot of like tiny little lights that you mount on your camera and stuff um, that are all pretty neat. They are really honing in on that like... You can afford to own them. It's not going to break your bank kind of LED unit. I think they make a 120D3 light kit that's really sort of like a very nice competition point compared to something like the older Airy light kits. They're daylight balanced, which is nice because most of our digital cameras are daylight balanced and we usually have daylight coming in the windows, especially the Mark D revisions are super nice because they've integrated with the uh, mark twos they've integrated a lot of the pieces so it's like a much simpler thing they can be v-mount powered they're like a nice little affordable unit they've also always had a lot of very affordable attachments so if you want to put like a light dome in front of it they're now making like a china ball adapter i think i talked about that a couple weeks ago on weekend film tech but they've come out with one that they showed off two years ago at nab we've been waiting for it in fact a couple weeks ago in hey professor someone was like i want to attach a leco to an aperture is there an adapter and i was like no they're coming out with one so they just came out with it to follow up on that hey professor from a couple months ago they have come out with the spotlight it's 500 bucks uh, which is expensive for an aperture attachment, right? Like their light domes are usually like a hundred bucks, but it's a hundred bucks because I mean, it's $500 because they're actually really complicated. So uh, what they're doing here is what's called an ellipsoidal adapter. You'll often hear them called like a Leco adapter, although Leco is sort of a specific kind of thing. And it's an attachment that fits on the front of your light unit and it makes your light super punchy. So if you ever see, I mean, you see these at like nightclub events all the time and actually sometimes like you'll see them in front of like big box stores and it'll be a very sharp light that part puts a very cut looking light on a floor or a wall and you can stick what's called a gobo in the unit and then you could like blast the logo up on a wall you you've seen leco lights in your life uh they're very popular in theatrical lighting and they're useful in film sets first off there's this thing called the light bridge if you're a michael haneke fan his dp uh, and his gaffer really invented it and it's a whole system of using like a leco and a bunch of little like three inch by three inch and six inch by six inch and three foot by three foot reflectors to light your entire scene with just like one powerful eco unit and a bunch of reflectors. Um, 
Lightbridge stuff looks gorgeous. You should check it out if you haven't checked out Lightbridge before. But even separate from that, it's always just a nice thing to have around when you're like, ah, oh, I got a, a little dark thing in the corner there and I want to like put a little special thing on it. And Lico's really fun because you've got these little aperture blades that you can get in there and you can really make sharp cornered edges. And, you know, we saw it in AB 2018. We saw where they were with the lens development. The lens is really the expensive part of this whole unit. I mean, there's some construction costs and design costs, but... A lens that is very crisp and clean is a big part of Alico, which is why this is $500. They're claiming only 200 degrees Kelvin in color shift in the lens. There's usually a color shift in these lenses. And they're also saying only one millimeter of spread. Obviously, that's all going to change based on, like, focusing. It's available in three focuses, a 19, a 24, a 28, and a 36, or 24 and a 36. And obviously, the 19 is going to be the brightest, but the, the smallest spot, 36, is going to be the bigger spread. Uh, you know, one example of where you might use this on a film set is you're on a low budget shoot and production design, like the scene calls for like a big launch party for a product and production designs like I can't make a 20 foot banner. We don't have that in the budget. Well, you can go in and you can get a custom made gobo, put it in one of these lights and shoot the logo of like the company that or the product up on the wall. And all of a sudden you're getting this amazing production design for a much lower cost. So Lico's are really popular. Production designers love having one on standby and that kind of thing, and we're excited that there's more low-cost options coming out. Uh, another smart thing they did with the spotlight, Lico's and these kind of ellipsoidals are usually pretty heavy. Aperture lights are a little lighter weight, so they actually attached a yoke to it. So the yoke, which is, you know, the yoke part that usually holds your light, uh, now there's a yoke on this, and you hang the light off the back. And it's a baby pin or a junior pin yoke, and you would put that in your stand, and then you'd hang like your 120 or your 300D uh, or any Bowens mount light, really. Although mostly Bowens mount is in motion is really associated with uh, aperture, and still there's some people who make some Bowens un units. And all of a sudden, you have like a very affordable, very stable way to have an ellipsoidal light on a film set. Something really punchy with really hard shadows with really hard edges where you can stick a gobo or a gel frame in and sort of paint the scene. I'm excited to see some of the applications we're going to see for this and like really indie filmmakers being able to take advantage of the, the options that open up with an ellipsoidal unit. Yeah, so that is like shipping now. I just got to call a little bit of shade here. So NAB 2018 was a big NAB for Aperture. Shade's the wrong term, but they announced two things that still haven't shipped at that NAB. This unit, which is now shipping, which means there's one thing from NAB 2018 that Aperture is still not shipping, and that is their RGB unit with a color picker. It was not actually on the show floor, so I guess they didn't announce it at NAP 2018 itself because it wasn't on the show floor. But they had like a press dinner. You went to the press dinner. They showed a unit, RGB unit, the handheld color picker. And so I could like point it at this light that's lighting my face, and then the RGB unit would match it perfectly. So there's so many applications for this unit. Like even if you could like sync it up to automatically as daylight color temperature change, control your camera via Bluetooth. So the color temperature change in your camera, there's a billion things you could do with this. So this is the remaining thing from Aperture that they showed at NAB 2018 at some Vegas restaurant. And uh, we are waiting. Aperture, please, please bring the RGB with the color picker out one of these days sometime soon. I imagine that is way harder than making an affordable ellipsoidal. <laughs> but it's nice to the affordable ellipsoidal Soidal is here, and uh, we're excited to see one around. The next time we're at a trade show, it'll be one of the things we want to see the what the final release unit looks like. Up next, this is a bit of a weird thing that I'm going to talk about here. It's called the Insta360 Go. It's weird for two reasons. One, it's a very consumer-focused tool. 
and this podcast, I talk about the week in film tech. It is the items that you're going to be using on set or in post sometime soon. So that's one thing, is that this is something that's not going to show up on a lot of sets yet. But I think there are some filmmaking applications, which is why I wanted to talk about it. And I think there's some interesting technology that's going to have real filmmaking applications down the pike. So those are the two reasons I really want to talk about it. The other thing is that it's not a 360 camera. And Insta360 officially needs a new name. If you don't know Insta360, they're sort of an interesting company. They make 360-degree uh, cameras. What's fascinating about Insta360 is they just came in and squashed a market. There was originally a whole bunch of people. Nokia had one, and there were a couple others. And there were a whole bunch of people competing with these, like, you know, Samsung had released. They were coming out with one. And they were all in, like, the forty to $60,000 price point. And then, like... One week, they all canceled their cameras, and two weeks later, so there was probably some espionage happening here, two weeks later, the Insta360 camera was announced for like 11000 I think, the original Mark One, and now there's a revision Mark Two, and now, now there's a Titan 11K that's like higher resolution than anything that was out there for 50000 but it's like 20-something. They just quashed it. My friends in the 360 space are all like, oh, this is the DVX100 of 360 capture. This is the 5D Mark Two of 360 camera. The capture this is the camera that like all sorts of people are going to go out and buy i think they have a 3500 one that's amazing that everybody's going to go out and buy this and have this amazing like explosion of 360 content capture and we're going to learn all sorts of stuff about 360 capture through this camera they're the only player in the space in that like robust there's a whole bunch of like 400 360 cameras out there but in terms of like robust cinematic quality controllable images they're really owning that market and they need to change their name because they're now going for this consumer market which it's not a 360 camera the insta 360 go if you're watching on youtube i'll hold it up next to my smiling teeth it, it like barely covers my smiling teeth it's like three centimeters long a centimeter and a half deep and a centimeter and a half wide. It is a micro camera for those of you who are not watching this on the YouTubes. I will put a picture of my smiling thing with the T next to it in the mailing list for this week. It is very, 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 very small. There are small cameras, right? Obviously, the camera itself is like a cell phone camera. So small cameras are no longer nearly as exciting as they would have been. Like if this were 1999 when I first got into filmmaking, we all would have been like, holy cow. Uh, and you can get 1080 video out of it. You get 100 frame per second slow-mo out of it. There are some interesting applications there, but what's interesting to me about it, and it's the marquee marketing feature, because there are other small cameras out there. The marquee marketing feature for me in here is that this is a stabilized camera, meaning that this tiny little unit has image stabilization built into it using all of what they discovered with 360 video is the big key differentiator in 360 video is not higher resolutions. Higher resolutions are great, but it's really internal image stabilization. Having all of that data for how the cameras are moving and stabilizing that and then being able to map all that stuff together is really what have made them stand out in the, in the 360 space. They're bringing all of that to sort of what they're hoping to create is a, a whole new space with these like stabilized micro cameras. And the fact that this little thing is stabilized is what is crazy impressive to me. Now, it's designed for a very consumer activity. You're supposed to be able to like magnetically clip it to your shirt or wear it on a little um, thing. And it's supposed to be like almost in some ways competitive with like GoPro, GoPro action cams or like, like tourists travel vacations. You know, hyperlapse is one of the big key marquee features they're really promoting with it where it's like you can walk around all day on your vacation and it'll take hyperlapse photos. And then at the end of the day, it'll use AI to create this beautiful hyperlapse video that reminds you of your whole walk. And obviously that's something you could do before with your phone, but no one's strapping their phone to their chest. And that's something that you could do before with your 
GoPro, but even a GoPro, you don't want around your chest all day. And even that, the GoPro is not sort of designed for that kind of like really sophisticated, long hyperlapsy stabilization that you can get out of like a phone with a hyperlapse app, but it's all built into this one little bundle. That is one place that I think it's interesting for filmmakers in that, you know, we've seen an increasing use of things like intervalometer and time lapse for storytelling purposes. Uh, if you go back and you watch a movie like uh, City of God, Fernando Marais and Caesar Shalone, I think was the DP. Really beautiful movie. They're using time lapse and uh, intervalometers all over the place to like, you know, follow a soccer ball around, follow a bullet around, like take you on these super fast journeys where like you can't really physically move the camera fast enough, but you want to create that feeling of moving fast enough. And, you know, I saw some nice tests from this. Obviously, these kind of cameras always do best at day exterior. I didn't, you know, none of the demo footage. I only got the thing in my hand a couple days ago, so I haven't actually shot anything with it yet, but the demo tester, but I want to go shoot a night hyperlapse with it. Uh, I can guarantee the night hyperlapse is not going to be as good as the day hyperlapse. These tiny little sensors with their tiny little imagers never do as well as at night as they do at day. But like, you know, there's some beautiful hyperlapse kind of footage coming out of that. The other nice thing about it that's really interesting is you can always enable sort of a hundred and frame per second slow-mo mode for action stuff. And what is interesting about it for me is it brings me back to the indie days you know, the example I always give to all my students is that, like, there's a shot on the HVX 200 in The Departed, and there's an iPhone shot in The uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Like, even in a movie that, like, both of those movies shot 35 millimeter, and in so many movies that are, like, 95% Alexa, there's still opportunities for little individual shots that the physical weight of something like the Alexa is not going to let you to get. The first thing that I came that came to me in this is like, I want to strap it to a boxing glove and punch someone in the face with it. I mean, obviously you'd have to like do a cutout in the boxing glove, but like that kind of stuff. Anytime you do that with a big heavy camera, like Alexa, you're faking it. You're trying to create, but like if they were wearing a, and if you did a little cutout in the glove so that it wasn't actually punching someone in the face with it, it would be amazing to see like an actual real momentum shot punching someone in the face that is also has internal image stabilization so that it is smoothing out some of the erratic moves of a punch. It seems like there's some interesting storytelling opportunities. I mean, someone is going to go out and shoot an entire feature on the Insta360. I don't know that many people will go out and shoot entire features on the Insta360, but I don't think there's a camera on Earth where someone hasn't gone and shot an entire project on it. But I think there are little... I like things like this the same way I remember the first time we started bringing GoPros on set and you just started having like, ah, oh, I can put one here or I can do this with it. And I like things like the Insta360 Go for even more like, oh, I could punch them in the face with it, which is something I would never think with a GoPro. Even as small as a GoPro is, it's still not quite small enough where you're like, oh, I'll cut a little pocket in a boxing glove and just go boop. But like the first thing I saw when I saw that was like, oh my God, I could do this. I could do that. And, you know, it might be four frames in an edit, but that's four frames in an edit that help tell the story. So I think between like establishing shots, hyperlapsy kind of things, weird little inserty stuff, I think there is going to be some perks to the go. I've got this demo tester from Insta360, so hopefully I'm going to play with it. I'm going to probably try and punch someone in the face with it. We'll see if I have any volunteers for that if you're in the New York area. <laughs> um, hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. Although, you know, I don't want to invite people on the internet to to volunteer to be punched in the face. That seems like a legal liability issue. Maybe I'll punch, I've got a mannequin head. Maybe I'll punch the mannequin head in the face. I'm curious about Insta360 Go. I think there will be interesting opportunities that show up there. And so I'm, I'm excited to play with it. All right, so we're going to skip our third story to the end. Our third story is Red versus Apple, the patent war. 
talked about it on other podcasts. Don't want you guys to skip that and miss this other thing. But I had a hey professor this week from the gram Instagram user Medmo Sam Adam. F-Y-A-C-E-M, who's got like 4,500 users. So like some people with some followers are, are hitting me up on Instagram. Doing music videos. Explained a very complicated workflow for using Tentacle Sync to sync a music video. And wants to find out if there's a way to use Tentacle Sync to do music videos. So Tentacle Sync, if you haven't used it, it is a great Bluetooth system for syncing time code. So if I have two cameras and I want their time codes to match, I could use two tentacle sync units, one on each camera, time code comes out of the camera and into the other camera, and now they match, and then I bring them to the edit room, and because it's time code in most of the major editing applications, bam, they sync together, hooray, you're super happy, it's great. In a music video, you're usually playing back the song on set, and because you're playing back the song on set, what your dream scenario is you bring it to the edit room and you just have the song in, in your audio track and then all of the video audio automatically syncs to the right part of your playback. And you don't have to do any post-syncing and then all the lip-syncing and the playback lines up and it's great. That is the ideal scenario. It sounds like what this person tried to do was a complicated system of like audio in one channel and time code in another channel and it never quite came together. And I'm going to propose an alternative workflow. So this is the old school indie music video workflow, what we used to do on music videos. We used to do on music videos, you'd prep the song in your editing platform and you'd get the song in there in the right time base, 2398. And then you would do a video that was just the time code getting displayed, right? And then what we used to do is we'd literally like hold up our laptop and press play and you'd see the time code going in camera and, uh, and then the song would play back and we'd play back out of the laptop. And that was like the old school low budget way to do a music video. You're playing back out of the laptop. The camera has seen the time code that sunk to the audio. And because the uh, audio clip is already in a timeline. And then as you bring in the video clips, you manually, every video clip that came in had to edit the time code to match the visual time code you saw. But it worked pretty well. What I would do in a modern scenario is I would still set up that timeline in my edit station on set. I'd bring a laptop to set. I'd have the edit station. I'd put that audio track in that ideally 2398, because I'm assuming that's what you're delivering, because that's what most of us deliver. 2398 timeline. But you don't have to turn the camera to shoot the laptop cover anymore, because we have tentacle sync, and tentacle sync will receive time code. And so what I would actually do if I were you, you just have to run cabled, not wireless. I want, I want you to run timecode out of your computer into a tentacle sync. And that tentacle sync will then serve as a master into all the other cameras. So you're going to need one tentacle for each camera in slave mode. They're receiving timecode data. And you're going to need one, time, one tentacle that's getting timecode from your computer. And then you need a device to get the timecode out of computer. The first one that comes to mind is an Ultra Studio. Uh, there's like a new 4K Ultra Studio for like 3000 but I bet you could get a used like HD Ultra Studio for like 500 bucks. But as time cut out, as a three pin XLR time cut out, Tentacle on their website sells a XLR2 Tentacle adapter for 27 bucks. It's also up at Adorama and B&H. So, so that time code will be the timeline's time code. And then it's outputting and it's going into one tentacle. Right? So literally, you'll just have the DNX sitting beneath your laptop. The little cable coming right out of that into a tentacle will dangle off the back. And then that tentacle will send time code out to all the other tentacles. And each one of those other tentacles will sit on the camera. So you got four cameras. You'll need five tentacles. They will all get the time code of playback. Now, you have to use that same playback 
playing from the digital, you know, playing from whatever software you're using to control your playback on set. That'll have to go out to the speakers or the PA system for the band to play out to, but that'll work. And that is how I would do it if I were doing it. You know, an Ultra Studio or DNXIO or something like that, they are around. You could probably even rent one, but that is how I would do what you are proposing doing. And I think that would be reliable. Yeah. So that, that would be my proposal. Um, the other thing I'll say is you didn't mention what software platform you were working on, but Media Composer and Resolve might have an easier time with this than Premiere. Not to be a hater on Premiere, but external time code to audio clips has been trickier for me in Premiere. That was two stories in a hey, professor. Now here's the third story of the week. And if you're going to skip out, sign up on our email list, tell our friends about it. But if you're going to stick around, I'll do the whole little call to action at the end. All right, final story of the week, Red versus Apple patent war. I talked about this in the No Film School podcast. Well, here's an interesting thing that's going on. So the first thing you should understand is Red deserves a tremendous amount of respect for innovating in the digital cinema space, and we can't forget that. They literally walked into a market that in 2004, 2005, 2006 was very legacy-focused. The major players, you know, I give Sony too much heat. I like some of the stuff they make. The A7S Mark II is a real great camera. But, like, they were very focused on, like, taking technology they already had, tape technology, older workflows, and then slowly bringing that to HD. So, you know, the F900, their big dominant camera of the time, or the F950, which I guess was out by that point, was shooting to this terrible tape format HD cam. And it was three chip. And it was a lot of these, like, legacy formats that, like... I understood why Sony, who'd been making cameras based on that technology for 30 years, wanted to find a way to bring that into the HD realm. But Red walked in and were like, single sensor, 35 millimeter sized, 4K, raw. And they just built it from scratch. And the beauty of them just building it from scratch is they threw all sorts of legacy stuff out. Some of that was great. Some of that was weird. Like the first Red one came out and it used mini SDI connectors, which like pointless. They just did that because they didn't know that they shouldn't. They were like, let's use mini SDI. It'll be smaller. SDI is such a universal format. They've never done that since. They couldn't fight SDI. <laughs> SDI is great. Mini SDI is ridiculous. Uh, it's like an internal connector. It's not never supposed to be exposed to the elements. And they legitimately, between 2005 and 2010, revolutionized a market. In the process of doing that, they took out some patents. Patents are designed to protect inventors. I invent something. I, I put a lot of work into uh, inventing it. I take a lot of risk in inventing it. And by doing all of that, you put yourself in a position where you are vulnerable to other people who don't have all your R&D costs coming in, seeing what you built and building the same thing. But you just spent $4 million on R&D. They didn't. They survive and you don't. That's not a situation we want to encourage. So patents are very much built around the idea of like, you take the risk, you do the innovation, you do the work, you deserve some protection built into our system in that. You deserve the ability to make your thing and have your thing uh, thrive. So that's that. That's why we have patent laws. That's where they come from. So Red did a bunch of patents. And there are a bunch of kinds of patents. You can patent ideas, you can trademark names, but they did patents that were built around the concept, and I'm not a patent lawyer, they did patents built around the concept of having a working prototype. They got these patents, and they're mostly built around internal RAW, which is why you don't have this drama for external RAW, right? Uh, and that's why so many other cameras for so long, it was always external RAW. Like you could shoot ProRes inside on an Airy Alexa, but you had to rent an external unit to do RAW, Sony Venice has internal raw, but originally like earlier Sony cameras, F55 and stuff, you had to get the external recorder from raw. It was sort of a workaround by the fact that red had all of these super strong patents and wanted to charge high licensing fees for internal raw. Fair enough. In 2013, Sony fought these patents and lost. Sony has internal raw. Now we assume they're paying licensing fees for that, 
but they fought these patents in 2013. They tried to be like, we're going to do internal raw and we don't owe you licensing fees, Red. And Red was like, no, we're going to fight you. So it is interesting. We are now in a situation where Apple is fighting these patents. First off, there's two big interesting parts of this. One, Blackmagic skipped these patents by designing their raw in a specific way. So Red's patents are for... If you don't debayer the image sensor information, you compress that undebayered information, and then you record it internally, red and its 4K and 23 frames per second. Red patents are in effect. So Blackmagic is like, what if we like half debayered it? So they half debayer it, they partially debayer it, then they compress it, then they finish the debayering, and Red doesn't have to pay Apple, uh, Blackmagic doesn't have to pay Red's patent licenses. Very sneaky black magic. You're out of this fight. Red worked with Atomos and, or didn't, I don't know how closely they worked with. I don't have that info, but I know that uh, when ProRes Raw first came out, it was, I don't know what the word is. It was licensing Red Technology, working with Red Technology. It was, there was some sense that they had navigated the patent circumstance somehow with Red. Although interestingly, the big places you can shoot ProRes Raw are all still external on an Atomos recorder, as I'm, there's an Atomos Shogun Inferno right in front of me right now. Uh, it's what I look down at sometimes to make sure I'm still in focus. So you've got those Atomos recorders. And weirdly, the other unit that shoots it is a DJI Inspire. And you could make some argument because it's like the, there's the stabilized camera head down below and the body up above that that's also an external recorder. And I bet they do make that argument. There was always a question of when you're going to have ProRes Raw internal on a camera the way you have Blackmagic Raw internal in the Blackmagic cameras. And hopefully soon in other cameras. And Apple is now fighting in court the patents of Red. I wonder if Red is not allowing licensing fees or being very expensive in their licensing fees. My guess is this is about ProRes Raw internal. There's been some people on the internet who are like, is this so we can have internal RAW on our iPhones? I doubt it. I can't imagine what the application to that would be. And it would just fill up your hard drive too fast on your phone to your flash drive. It wouldn't. I guess they're still physically hard drives. I think this is about uh, Airy wanting to do ProRes Raw internal in an Alexa LF. Because, you know, I did a bunch of LF jobs this summer, or LF shoots this summer, and holy cow, Airy Raw is big. <laughs> Every single one we just ended up shooting ProRes Quattro because Airy Raw is just massive. But ProRes Raw is a very nice balance of image quality and raw. So I am sure Airy wants to do Airy Raw and ProRes Raw internally. But ProRes Raw internally means paying a license fee to Red. So Apple is now fighting it. And what's interesting about all this is not only are they fighting it, they're fighting it based on the time when Red had a working prototype. Because they filed the patent saying we have a prototype on X date. Other people tried to put in patents around similar times for X date, but Red won the patent filing based on when their prototype was available. But now there's a whole lot of discussion online of what was working when. This was all at NAB in like 2006 and 2007. They would show these prototypes. But now there's people going back to 13 years later and they're looking at a picture and they're like, hey, I see in that picture this kind of cable is connecting that red camera to something underneath a table. Is that thing underneath a table a full computer? Does that make it an external recorder? So does that mean it wasn't doing... So Ginny Tech has this amazing 30-minute video. If you don't remember Ginny Tech, Ginny Tech are the people who are really mad at Red about charging as much money as they charge for their Red Mini Mags. Red has been so innovative, and I'm grateful for them, but I kind of like the scrappy uh, punk rockness of Ginny Tech. Cause, uh, so they made like a 30-minute video about like Red doesn't deserve their patents, and they went for it. In an aggressive way. Apple filed their patent dispute way back in May. We only just heard about it now. Did Ginny Tech send Red's patent lawyers in January a, a preview cut of his their video? I don't know. Uh, we have no inside knowledge there. We just know that around the same time that news of the Apple versus Red patent battle came out, simultaneously this Ginny Tech video 
detailing why Genetech doesn't think Red deserves the patent came out all at the same time. I have super mixed feelings about all of this. I want to see ProRes Raw inside Sony Venice, Blackmagic Ursa, because Blackmagic seems to want to play with everybody. They would prefer if we use Blackmagic Raw, but I don't think they really care. I want to see it in an Arial XLF. I want to see it in... You know what? I, I want to see it in the Panasonic SH, S1H. I doubt we will see it in the S1H, uh, but I'd love to see it in the S1H. <laughs> um, I don't think that camera has the internal processing power to record raw video, but maybe it does. I don't think a, like under $5,000 camera is going to have it anytime soon, but I would love it if it did. So yeah, I except obviously the Blackmagic Pocket 6K um, and 4K. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I would love it if the patent was more open I also really want to recognize that Red innovated an entire market in a super impressive way. And while we sometimes have frustrations with aspects of the company or color space or marketing choices, they deserve patent protection for innovating dramatically. Um, I don't, I wasn't at NAB in those years, so I don't know exactly. I don't, you know, I can't be like, and there's me in the picture in the background as other people who have commented on Twitter who are like, that's me in that picture. <laughs> and uh, I remember that. In terms of working in the field, Red was the first camera that 99% of the people I know ever shot raw 4K with in the field, internally. I'm not a patent lawyer. I don't know if that means anything. Uh, it'll be interesting to see Apple and Red, both of whom have very big legal teams, fight this one out. I have no horse in the race. I, maybe what'll happen is Red'll get to keep their patent protection but lower their licensing prices. I don't know. Complicated time. It's a fun time to watch this race. All right, everybody. So that is all of the stuff that you should know about. So if you're walking into a production company pitch session or a post suite and you want to talk about what's going on in the industry today, this is the stuff that's going on in the industry this week that you should talk about in the week in film tech. Please, if you like this podcast, tell your friends about it. We're trying to grow our audience a little bit and sign up at weekinfilmtech.com where you can, every week I send out an email with just like a reminder about the podcast and links to stories I talked about. If you're in the New York tri-state area, I'm speaking at Anorama September 18th on practical visual design. And then I'm doing something late October, also on a Wednesday, uh, five to seven on lighting with apps. So come out and see me in person or watch the live stream at either of those events. This has been another fun week on the week in film tech. Have fun making movies. We'll talk next week. Mm -hmm.